This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I want to play a little audio for you. Listen to this. 73, uh, QRZ, Whiskey 5, Zulu, November. K Oscar, uh, Q Oscar 1, United, huge signal, nice to see you. Echo Mike 4-5, thank you, sir, QRZ. Uh, Japan, Charlie, Whiskey, Echo Mike 4-5. What you've just heard sounds like an ordinary contest operation, doesn't it? But what you don't know is that I made this recording on the 6-meter band using a wire dipole in my attic. And the signals you're hearing originated from more than a thousand miles away. Some of you are nodding your heads right now. You know what this is, don't you? It's an example of a propagation phenomenon known as sporadic E. The E stands for the E layer of our ionosphere, and sporadic refers to the fact that the phenomenon is sporadic. It comes and it goes without warning. This type of propagation isn't limited to 6 meters, though. Sporadic E often pops up on 10 meters and even 15 meters in some cases. And going the other way, when sporadic E is particularly intense, you'll find it on the 2-meter band. Some people will say that there are no more mysteries to explore with amateur radio, but that's not true, and sporadic E is an excellent example. Even though scientists have been aware of sporadic E propagation for many years, they still don't know what causes it. We know that it involves an ionized cloud in the E-layer that suddenly appears and then seems to drift around for hours before disappearing. But what causes the cloud to appear in the first place? And why does this occur mostly in the spring and early summer and also in early winter? A number of theories have been proposed. One of the more recent ones suggested that strong thunderstorms could create these clouds, But that doesn't really explain why we have sporadic E propagation in the winter here in the northern hemisphere, when thunderstorms are all but unknown. Another theory suggests that bursts of cosmic rays could trigger the formation of ion clouds. But again, why the seasonality? Sporadic E is spooky stuff that causes some hams to refer to 6 meters in particular as the magic band. It's magic in the sense that you may hear nothing but noise for hours on end, only to suddenly hear loud signals from hundreds or even thousands of miles away. The other interesting thing about sporadic E is that it takes so little power to make contacts. Whatever is reflecting our signals, it's doing so very efficiently. Amateurs with directional antennas and high power levels can really make the most of a sporadic E opening, especially the weaker ones. But hams with very ordinary stations, or sub-ordinary, if you will, can play this game too. As I said, I've made many sporadic E contacts with just wire antennas and 100 watts on 6 meters. In one memorable incident, I was building a kit one evening, and I paused to switch my transceiver to 6 meters, and I just quickly tuned through the phone portion of the band. After tuning around a while, I was surprised to find a net taking place. Okay, I left my radio tuned to the net and went back to building my kit. I wasn't really paying close attention, but after a while I realized that I was hearing call signs I didn't recognize. Nearly all of the call signs contained the number 4, which is more than a little odd for a net operating in my area of the country, which is New England. Uh Uh-oh. While I stopped building the kit, I grabbed the microphone and checked into the net. 
And that control station was a little mystified at first, but then he suddenly realized what was going on. He welcomed me into his weekly sideband net that was taking place in central Florida. We all went back and forth for close to 30 minutes, and we had a great time. And then, abruptly, they were gone. It was as though someone had pulled a giant switch in the sky. The net vanished, and the noise returned. Nothing but noise. I'm speaking with Ward Silver, N0AX, a call sign that's probably familiar to many of you. He uh, is a prolific author, not only of ARRL books and QST magazine, but uh, also for other books, uh, Ham Radio for Dummies by Wiley and Sons. And he's also the editor of the most recent ARRL Antenna book and The Handbook. And, appropriately enough, he literally wrote the book on antenna modeling. Good morning, Ward. Hi, Steve. Welcome to everybody. Ward, since you know everything there is to know about antenna modeling, can you define what antenna modeling means? Well... Uh, that's quite a that's quite a lead up there. Um, know everything there is to know. Well, basically, <laughs> basically uh, antenna modeling is a way to uh, create a computer table. I guess is the best way of putting it that allows you to calculate all the interactions between the different parts of the antenna, add them all together and get a reasonably good idea of what the antenna is going to do in terms of its radiation pattern and feed point impedance at different frequencies. Uh, You have to remember that it's only a model, and most uh, PAMs don't go to the great detail necessary to really describe uh, an actual antenna down to the down to the very small things that affect it. So you have to take it with a grain of salt, and um, uh, it's quite useful in getting a basic design rough together and giving you some confidence that it's going to actually act like an antenna so you can go out and build it. Now, as you say, it is just a model. In your opinion, though, Ward, how accurate is it? If you're careful, if you use all of the procedures and processes that allow the math to work. That means you have to um, use things like element schedules for when you have telescoping tubing. You have to tell the model that as the element uh, progresses out to the tip for an HF Yagi, for example, that um, the pieces of tubing are getting smaller, that affects the model and it affects the SWR curve um, quite a bit, surprisingly. Um, And other things like what kind of mounting hardware do you have at the boom? What kind of feed point do you have? Do you have a um, choke, a feed line choke to isolate the feed line? All these things matter to various degrees. If you want a model that's going to be pretty doggone accurate, you're going to have to get pretty doggone detailed in what you feed the model. If you're just looking for, hey, is this going to work on this band and that band? If I put it up in my backyard at 40 feet, um, then you don't have to go quite to that level. You can also get models that other people have developed for common 
antennas and commercial antennas and use them, move them around, put them at different heights, all that kind of thing, and get a pretty good idea of how they're going to behave. Uh, the, the key thing in modeling um, I've figured out is keeping from fooling yourself because um, it's really easy to uh, fiddle around with the model until you get just exactly the performance that you want but have made so many compromises and tweaks that it no longer really reflects reality or you're exciting some um, behavior of the software that evaluates the model and um, it doesn't actually perform like that when you make a real antenna. So that's part of the learning process. Now, speaking of the software, what kind of software do you need? Well, um, the one that most PAMs use now is EZNEC, E-Z-N-E-C. NEC stands for the numerical electromagnetic code that was developed uh, by public agencies um, and military uh, many years ago, and it's uh, gone through a number of revisions. There are also some other free uh, software out there. EasyNEC is the one that's actively supported at this point. 4NEC2 is another one, and um, there are uh, some other types of computer modeling. Uh, One, um, well, the difference, there are two classes of modeling software. One does a method of moments where it breaks the antenna down into little pieces, um, assuming they're wires or tubes, and... um, evaluates those, and the other is a more complex electromagnetic simulation where it treats things as surfaces. Uh, The latter takes quite a bit more computing power. It can model uh, more interesting shapes, but most ham antennas do just fine with an easy neck style program. And there are um, some associated programs that I'll mention in passing. Um, there's one called Auto Easy, A-U-T-O Easy by AC6LA that acts as a front end to EasyNEC and allows you to uh, uh, automatically adjust some of the antenna details to um, look for the best SWR, best gain, or what have you. Uh, it allows you to optimize without having to run all the different models yourself. And another one is SimSmith, S-I-M-S-M-I-T-H, which is a free online um, service that allows you to do some pretty sophisticated transmission line um, modeling. Since an antenna has got to be connected to the transmitter with the transmission line, that's another good thing you can take into account. So the combination of EasyNAC or one of the electromagnetic simulators plus the optimizer and the transmission line program uh, can do a very good job of modeling, but you have to be willing to put in the time to learn how to use them and recognize when you're pushing them beyond their um, ability to describe reality. For an average ham such as myself, Ward, who is playing around, let's say, with a dipole antenna in his backyard, what sort of software would be best for that? Would it be the auto uh, version with the head end on it or, or what? I, I wouldn't even bother with an optimizer. Um, for a very simple backyard wire antenna, just model it, get a basic idea of what it's going to act like, and go out and put it up, 
see what it does and adjust to taste. Um, models um, uh, vary with your ground type and ground conductivity and whether you have any um, nearby conducting surfaces such as in your house or electrical wires or other antennas. So unless you're willing to really model all that stuff, um, the best thing to do is get close and then go build it. No, I agree. Uh, just with a antenna analyzer works very well for me, actually. When you see antenna modeling results in QST, for example, and elsewhere, you'll see the radiation pattern depicted. Is that obviously something that should be taken with a grain of salt, or how accurate is that? Well, it depends on the modeler. If uh, the modeler has taken into account um, lots of factors like interaction, ground type, ground conductivity, um, that kind of thing, and it's really um, put in the resources to make an accurate model, then yes, that's pretty much the way it's going to behave on the air. If it's just um, a cut and try type of model, um, you have to take it with a grain of salt. So it's hard to tell just from a magazine article how credible the model is. So I would correspond with the author and ask for a copy of the model and then run it. Uh, EasyNeck is not expensive. Uh, it's supported by a lot of um, uh, people. And um, Roy Llewellyn, W7EL, is the, is the author. But there's a tremendous amount of um, EasyNeck know-how and experience out there for the beginning modeler to um, take advantage of. Plus, there are a lot of EasyNEC models that have been developed that come with the uh, downloadable information uh, provided with the antenna book, so you don't have to start from scratch. You can start with a dipole. They have a dipole model in there, and then you can edit it and change it the way you want, and um, uh, you can get up to speed pretty quick. Very good. Thank you very much, Ward. What you're about to hear will sound fantastic as in the word fanciful, or I must be making this up, but I'm not. Imagine that you own a computer that contains extremely sensitive information, the plans for a faster-than-light starship engine, for example, and your company or your government doesn't want this incredible information to fall into the wrong hands, so it takes extreme measures to protect that computer. The first line of defense, for example, is usually to completely remove the computer from the Internet. There are no outside connections of any kind to the machine or the network that it might inhabit. And these systems exist, by the way, and they're called air-gapped computers or air-gapped networks. Now imagine that you're a spy. You want to access that machine, but how do you go about it? If you're someone with an imagination like Mordecai Guri, the head of research and development at Ben-Gurion University of Negev in Israel, you come up with all sorts of strange ways of sending data from air-gapped computers to the outside world without being detected. Guri's research doesn't look at ways of compromising and planting malware on these super-secure systems. Instead, he focuses on innovative and never-before-seen ways of getting the data out without being detected and through methods that network defenders aren't even aware of or probably haven't even thought of. In new research published a couple of months ago, 
Gurry looked at the vibrations that can be generated using a computer's fans, such as the central processing unit fans, the graphics processor fans, power supply fans, or any other fan that happens to be on the chassis or in the cabinet. Gurry says that malicious code planted on an air gap system can control the speeds at which these fans work. By modifying the speeds at which these fans are running, the attacker can control the frequency of the vibrations coming off the fan. Gurry says that a spy who happens to be nearby can record these vibrations using accelerometer sensors that you find in modern smartphones, even the one you have right now. And then the spy can decode information hidden in the vibration pattern and reconstruct the information stolen from the air-gapped system. If the spy has physical access to the air-gapped network, he can place his smartphone on a desk nearby and collect the beam to vibrations without even touching the air-gapped computer. If the attacker doesn't have access to an air-gapped network, then the attackers can infect the smartphones of employees who happen to work for the targeted company. Malware on the employee's device can pick up these vibrations on behalf of the spy. Gurry says that this is possible because the accelerometer sensors in modern smartphones can be accessed by any app without requiring the user's permission, which makes this technique highly evasive. Now, there's one serious problem with all this, and I bet some of you have already guessed. Transferring data through vibrations is very slow, on the order of just a half a bit a second. So the spy's smartphone will need to sit there gathering information for quite a long time. That would probably be just a little bit conspicuous. Many will dismiss this type of espionage as impractical and once again fanciful, and for now it probably is. But those in the field who've read Gurry's work are very impressed, and they think it's a warning that should be heeded. Butch Ally and K8KO passed along some news about what researchers at Drexel University are doing with spray-on antennas. You heard that right. Their antennas are made of an extremely thin metallic material known as maxine. At least that's what they call it. It's a two-dimensional form of titanium carbide that's highly conductive. Now, maxine itself isn't entirely new. In fact, it's been used for experimental batteries that recharge in seconds. We talked about this. But in this case, the Drexel team created a powdered form that can be dissolved in water to form an ink or a paint that can be sprayed onto a surface to create an antenna. The team tested the new maxine antennas and found that despite their incredible thinness, their performance is comparable to existing antennas. It looks like these Maxine antennas are highly efficient. Compared to other experimental antenna materials, the Maxine antennas were apparently 50 times more efficient than graphene, and 300 times more efficient than silver ink. As you can probably imagine, the Maxine antennas are pretty fragile, and they don't violate the laws of physics, though. Being so extremely thin, their ability to handle RF energy is rather limited. The researchers have been using only million microwatt power levels so far. Even so, the Maxine material has the potential to change the design of tiny transceivers that are popping up as our world becomes increasingly wireless. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at ARRL.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, K 
KC1JMW. See you next time.